0: I want to welcome our visitors, I see some faces here that I haven't seen yet, as well as the familiar ones. If you're visiting our class, welcome. My name is Russell Atkins. I'm filling in for Dr. Tim Jennings. We are studying lesson six, the challenge of his sayings. Let's start with a word of prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the gift of life and the gift of health, and we want to acknowledge you as our Creator and Redeemer. Ask your presence here as we study uh, another facet of the life of your son while he was on this earth. God, our group today, be with those of our group who are not with us, bring them safely back to us in the future. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I had a tough time reconciling even the title of the lesson because uh, when I hear when I hear the term a saying, I tend to think that it a saying is something that is kind of just pervades language a cliche a colloquialism something that just kind of happens and i don't think that well the jesus i know didn't really do anything by accident on this earth uh, everything was intentional and had a purpose um so uh, the lesson actually makes a distinction between some of these things that we're going to talk about and you know verse, sayings versus teachings and um I don't know that I see such a distinction. Uh, does anybody have any thoughts on this in their study of the lesson this week?
1: Well, certainly there's a distinction between about hating your enemies, and isn't there? Jesus, translators of other scriptures use the word hate several times, and I didn't think God ever hated anything except sin.
0: Well, The Teacher's Quarterly suggests that sometimes in in translation between, you know, the Greek and and Hebrew and other languages that the scriptures were originally written in, that the term hate or the word hate is simply a, a, simply means to love less. Right. I'm wondering more about, you know, the the sayings that is outlined here and in the lesson. Let's dive right in. Sunday's lesson. This is talking about marriage and abstinence. (laughs) I have friends of mine that suggest those two go hand in hand. But we should probably not, uh, probably won't want to touch on that. Yes, 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 they will. (laughs) Well, let's look at the, the passage that it outlines here to begin with. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12. Someone look that up and read it, please. Some Pharisees
2: came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is a situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who cannot accept this should accept it.
0: Any thoughts on this passage? Let's look at the first part of the passage first.
1: I think that it's actually interesting that... uh, and Moses didn't really say that. I said it bothered me when I first read that. I said, "Well, Moses said you could do that," and and I went back in Deuteronomy. Moses didn't really say that. He said, "Well, if this happens," so Moses didn't give people permission to permission to uh, divorce or something. I mean, otherwise, why would the New Testament be be different from the Old Testament?
0: Well, let's back up a little bit. Let's consider the Exodus from Egypt and the. The the revelation of the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law following up on the Ten Commandments. What was the status of females in, in this culture?
3: No.
0: Come on, property. Maybe less than property. I, I would imagine that some treated their their uh, work oxen uh, better than their their spouse. Yes.
4: Well, the thing I don't like, like in my translation, it says. And which, I tell,
0: which translation is that? The New Living. Okay.
4: In verse nine, it says, "And I tell you this: a man who divorces his wife, marries another, commits adultery, unless his wife has been unfaithful." It's like he's correcting Moses' law, but then he's bending again right at the end to fit the people's needs at the time. It's, it seems kind of. Elaborate. Well, he says unless the the woman has been unfaithful, that's another showing of property, and that's kind of something that wouldn't pertain to nowadays because we don't. Women aren't like that society nowadays. It's it's like equals.
0: Well, they may not be. They may they may not be like that in Western culture, but there are still some cultures, um, namely where (laughs) this was set.
4: He was, the Pharisees were trying to use Moses' law to trap him, and he was correcting it, saying that Moses wrote that law only because the people demanded it at the time. And then, then he just goes around and, and it's like he says, God's law, you know, was for it to not be broken at all. And then he says, unless the woman has been unfaithful. That's kind of, it seems like he's twisting it again.
0: Okay, why do you think he put that caveat in there?
2: Well, it used to be that they could, for any reason, just say, I divorce you. And right. right. It didn't matter what he was unhappy with.
0: And then what happened to the woman if that, that happened?
2: An outcast. Correct. Right? And so Christ was saying, that is a right. There, there's only one reason why you may really put, put to divorce your wife. Not for just because she
5: burned the beans or something. <laughs> <laughs> Okay.
0: Any other thoughts on this?
6: Well, they weren't really trying to find any truth when they were hitting him with this question test, the Pharisees. I mean, they were just trying to trap him. They weren't looking for truth. They weren't really paying any attention to what he was going to say. To be honest, Um, but he, you know, I think Jesus was just trying to give the ideal. Right. This is what the ideal is supposed to be.
0: In the beginning, God created them, male and so female.
6: Trying to give them the concept. Okay. Of love and what this is all about. they had already pretty much hardened their hearts anyway, and it wasn't going to pay much attention to them one way or the other. They were looking for rules, you know, mm-hmm. one, two, three, and he gave them a little bit of that, but he was still trying to get them to view the concepts. You know, I think
1: it's helped me a whole lot on all the scriptures, like. Alan just said, that what is the ideal? And uh, if you keep that in mind, that we're, we're not going to reach the ideal, necessarily, in this life. <laughs> Paul said, I keep pressing towards the mark, you know, I want to be as healthy as I can. I, so I keep learning what I can.
0: We're going to touch on that in just a few minutes when we talk about perfection. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So we can see today that that applies to both men and women. What's our definition of marital unfaithfulness?
6: Think it in your heart. You've already done it.
0: Hmm. Someone we'll look up Matthew five twenty-seven, twenty-eight, 28, please.
2: You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart.
0: All right. So what Christ is telling us here is that adultery transcends. It's a a heart condition. It's a condition of an infected heart. Is sexual unfaithfulness the only thing that is described under the umbrella of adultery? When we stand up in church before witnesses, before a minister, or just the peace, or whoever marries you, and you pledge to love, honor, and cherish this person, forsaking all others till the day you die, is it only the tingly parts, is it only your genitals that you pledge to one another?
2: Your entire being.
0: Do we not pledge our minds, our hearts, ourselves to this other person? So that how how then do we define marital unfaithfulness now? I don't have a definition. I'm I'm looking for help here. <laughs> Work with me.
6: When you when you try to this is this
0: this is scary. This is scary stuff, folks. This is this is this is completely different than than the environment that I was raised in you know, through school and through church and through, through whatever, um, th- this is, this is different. Uh, Hang on a second. Uh, like in verse 9 and
5: 19, it mentions sexual immorality, Oh, there in, uh, Where? In 19 uh, verses, chapter 19, verse 9.
0: What version are you reading from?
5: Yeah, New King
0: James. Re- read it. And Verbatim, saying, please.
5: Whoever divorces wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her is, all, is considered commons, commits adultery. Okay. In the other text, it says you look at somebody lustfully. So that that can't be proven. I mean, that can be proven. For example, a real adultery here where you go out with another woman or another man, that match could be.
0: Okay. Sorry, that, that was- I'm reading the NIV, and it says anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness. So your your version narrows that scope down a little bit. All right. Well, let's let's explore that possibility. Couple gets married, and a few years down the road, wife finds out that uh, her husband is addicted to internet pornography. He has never physically strayed from her, but an addiction to internet pornography uh, changes the relationship, impacts the relationship in ways that are destructive to him and to her. Is this sexual immorality? Is this marital unfaithfulness? It's,
2: it's right.
6: Why? Because you're more concerned with yourself than you are with the other person.
0: Okay, good. Any other insights? Yes? Okay. Tying it right back to what Christ has said that adultery, marital unfaithfulness, uh, immorality is a heart condition. It's not necessarily a physical condition. Consider the same couple and the woman develops an emotional attachment to a coworker there's no physical gratification no acting out on this emotional attachment is this marital unfaithfulness
6: yes. why she's seeking another for self gratification you're breaking that circle that Tim talks about all the time, the circle of giving in love, and that to me would be the commitment of marriage.
0: Good. What's the common thread in all this?
2: Self. Self,
0: self a focus on self. Thank you. Exactly. Yes?
2: There seem to be seminars today about divorce and abusiveness. It could be verbal abusiveness. And there just seemed like a lot of um, the, a programs going on that people go to. They don't want to talk about to others, but they have a counselor who talks about it and tries to help them through it.
0: Right. And I, I want you, I want you all to consider something. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know for a fact that there are people sitting in this room, and there are people that will be listening on the internet. ...who have gone through the horror of a divorce. And I want you to think about how we as a church have treated these people. And if you've, and if you've been in that situation, consider how the church has treated you. And we, we need to ask ourselves some hard questions... ...about how we deal with people that are hurting... ...that have gone through a divorce one of the one of the more painful experiences that that we can go through on this earth i used to give a seminar discussing the effects of physical exercise on stress and how each one affects the body and there are stress indexes out there that rate stress levels where 100 is you know the value of 100 is the most stressful thing you can experience the top of the list is the death of a spouse that that's that rates at a hundred. Next on the list is getting married. That's like a 99. And the third on the list is going through a divorce at a 98. Getting married and the death of a spouse are the polar opposite ends of our kinds of just of stress. One is distress, and one is eustress. E u s t r e s s. They are still ranked equally on the stress scale. But going through a divorce is one of the more stressful things that humanity can can go through. Uh, have you ever heard the saying, God hates divorce? I don't know. Is that scriptural? I don't know if that's scriptural. If that's it's in Malachi. Okay. God hates divorce. Why does God hate divorce?
3: Because of the ripple effect for, for one reason.
0: Uh, elaborate, please.
3: Uh, well, there's just so many... Involved the family, involved children, and, and he said because he wants godly offspring. And it is more difficult to have godly offspring through a divorce.
0: Okay, but what is it about divorce that he hates? Is, is he offended because what he has put together, someone else has rent asunder? Someone else has separated? Is he mad that that two people have decided to go separate ways? In the back.
2: I think you might hate it a lot because uh, having been through one, we both Christians, which I've really, highly redefined since that point. But had we both been focusing on God and not on self, and maybe God and then the spouse, man, you know what they say about marriage counselors, you go to them because the marriage is already trouble How, why why is it even in big trouble? Why have we allowed that because we didn't focus on God? We focused on itself. You are driving me absolutely insane type thing. And itself again it's
7: back itself.
0: Okay. So it hear? is Yes sir.
7: Well, I just wanted
8: to say I think God is just because, I mean he loves us we're his children
0: Oh, so he's not mad because his law's been broken. He's not mad because what he's put together that humanity decided to separate. He's the father he's the children. He hates divorce because it hurts his children. But
3: well, it also represents the closest relationship you have is, a, is like probably a parent child. But next to that is the spouse. And so God is all about relationships. So when you have relationships broken, it it symbolizes the relationship that God has to his people, too. So um, that affects how people view uh, God, even in a, in a divorce. When a divorce happens, it affect the review of God. So that's probably one of the biggest reasons, is, is how people views begin to be skewed because, through things like that.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. It does affect others views of God because God, you know, instituted marriage as a means of showing the universe, you know, you know, under the the umbrella of the great controversy, he created man and woman to come together and to literally give of one another to bring new life into existence and to share and sacrifice of themselves for one another and for the for the offspring, in an, in an effort to reveal to the universe the, the very nature and character of God. That's why Satan attacked that relationship in the Garden of Eden. And that's why he continues to attack that relationship. That Because it further distorts, it perpetuates the lies that he has told since that time, and since before that time, about the character of God. Do
2: you still think he... Considers it a condition of the heart, just like he did
0: in the New Testament.
2: The divorce. I'm not sure what. If our hearts aren't in tune with God, anything's liable to creep in that can cause a divorce. Our hearts are hardened toward Him or anything else.
0: Sure, absolutely. I mean, Satan will use any avenue he can. Any avenue he can.
2: So, I mean, taking
8: this, you know, a few comments on this, um, really then the divorce that occurs is just a symptom of the problem that already exists. So, it's not the divorce, well, you know, I'm speaking not someone who has ever been married nor had the opportunity to be divorced, just to clear the air there. But, but um, <laughs> <laughs> the divorce is just a manifestation of the problem that already exists. And so, we shouldn't look at they got divorced, they've got a problem. The couple that is miserable, and thinking they're doing the right thing by staying together for the sake of the children, that can be just as detrimental, if not more so. Because the, ex, you know, the person looking in might think, oh, they're a great Christian family. They're still married. But in reality, you know, what is going on may be very far from the ideal display of the ideal relationship.
0: Well said, and that type of relationship could be every bit as destructive and every bit as distorting of the character of God than the couple that divorces.
6: One more thing, Scott, I've had enough marriages and divorces to cover both of us. So we're good to
3: go. But
6: uh, no, my comment was uh, with the divorce and the the ramifications of it is you break that trust with an individual very close to you. That makes it harder for you to be able to trust God in the appropriate way. That's the real malignancy of it, I think. It makes it harder to trust somebody, and especially God.
0: Thank you. That's a valuable insight that I I hadn't even considered. Appreciate that, Alan. Let's look at the last part of this passage, um, which is also fairly incendiary. Um, Specifically... You know, 10 through 12. Disciples, if this is a situation between husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Uh, and Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this. Not everyone can accept this word, but only to those whom, to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way because of men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. What does this mean?
1: I think it's, in the overall picture is rather simple. That uh, Adventists, we've come to view the law, as you know, specific to this and that, but if we go back like uh, we tend to the last few years and say it's the law of love, and David says, Oh, how I love thy law, and so forth. God has an ideal, a perfect ideal for us. And uh, obviously, we've strayed a long ways from that and sexual relationships and so forth in marriage is one of the areas that Satan works at the most. And, and Jesus was trying in an evil world, very evil and so forth, to meet people, to as a loving parent, trying to say, you know, you've messed up this way and that way and so forth. But the ideal is, now, and I've talked to some who, you know, have, have, uh, have said I should have stayed in my first marriage. If I'd have worked as hard at my first marriage as I did my second or third, we'd still be together. We wouldn't have had this and so forth. So, again, I think Jesus is saying there's an ideal. And if you, but some can live with this. Some of you have already abandoned it. And if you do, again, the bottom principle is the Father loves you.
4: And
0: okay. you in his kingdom. I agree. But in the last part of this text, the disciples say it's better not to marry. And Christ says, not everyone can accept this. Uh, who's he talking about? Who were included is only to those who, to whom it has been given. There are entire geopolitical religious systems that are built on the idea that their leaders should not marry. And their leaders should take vows of celibacy.
2: Well, yes. I think if you're really dedicated to the Lord and you want to do this work, sometimes it's hard to balance when you have a family and a home to care of and you're going you know, through um, all kinds of evangelistic series and all kinds of outreach programs and still give your own family enough time, so you kind of have to decide where you belong, where you fit into that.
0: Okay. Let's think about all the scriptures. Now, list some people to whom... This uh, ideal has been given. And who accepted it? Come on, folks. You know, Christ himself. He never married. Hang on. Uh, Actually, we suspect that that Paul is a member of the Sanhedrin. Um, I think he had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us for certain that he was married. But as a member of the Sanhedrin, I believe one of the criteria was that you had to have a spouse. Um. Christ himself uh, spent thirty three years on this earth, never married.
3: Why?
2: Why? He couldn't be as effective if he had a wife and children to take care of Okay.
0: Right. Think of this is some these are these are things that I ponder when I'm riding my bike or doing whatever. This is just bizarre thoughts go through my head. Think about the struggle that of Christ when he was 16 to 20 years old and the hot little Jewish girl comes batting her eyes at him. You know, here he is working in his father's carpenter shop. Probably a good-looking kid. Think about the think about the temptation to to abandon the work and and have a spouse and start a family. Okay? I don't feel called to do that. I don't feel called to renounce Founding a spouse and and complete the work of Christ? The Holy Spirit hasn't asked that of me. Thank you. (laughs) Who else, other than Christ himself, who else was called to do this? Moses. Moses had a wife. He was uh, certainly a great prophet, no no doubt about it, but he did have a wife. Who else? Daniel. 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 Interesting. Daniel was one of those who was made a eunuch by men. When he was taken into captivity... He was snipped. So Daniel was called to to devote his life to the service of God. Who else?
7: It said not to take them from this world, but keep them from evil. I mean, it's good to be in this world and still to do right. It's like the nuns that go and not marry. God doesn't, God does not intend that for us. Not to take them from this world, but keep them from evil. To have a family, to have a partner, but stay away from evil. Mm -hmm. To do what's right, to be fair. Okay. No. You can, we can be balanced. Oh, I, be balanced.
0: I couldn't agree more. Were, we're
7: the disciples
2: married?
0: Uh, some of them were. Peter was. It was his mother-in-law that got sick that Christ cured from the fever. What about Elijah and Elisha? The Old Testament prophets?
2: It doesn't talk about their wives, does it?
0: Not much. Well, Were they married?
2: Hosea, though was lot uh, admonished to keep
0: his wife where he had. Uh, that's a great example. He, he was he was told to go out and marry a prostitute, yeah. and when she left, he was told to go get her back. How's that for a calling from God? I, I'd, really, I'd rather be called to be single. <laughs> what about John the Baptist? He was called by the Holy Spirit to dedicate the life, his life, to preparing the way. So the idea that some systems, some people have come up with that in this passage Christ is telling us that we are to live a life of abstinence and loneliness is incorrect.
2: I was just thinking Jesus couldn't dare marry because for a woman without a child at that time, it was disgraceful, not blessed by God. She was not blessed by God because he couldn't have children. And if if they had had children, can you imagine what would have happened to those offspring? How they would have been revered through the lineage all the way through. I'm sorry, I went to see Da Vinci Code, and I, I thought, well, this would have been... If, um, if that had happened, I mean, the Pope
0: would have never reached the position he's in if we had, you know, descendants of Christ, actual biological descendants. Right? Mm-hmm. Valid point. There are, you know, the Gnostic Gospels have kind of become fodder for television and reading and, and speculation. Uh, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, some of the other Gnostic Gospels that suggest that. Christ indeed did marry and father children, and that his holy blood and this whole issue of bloodlines is, is another pagan theme that runs through um, Hollywood and Christianity and some other uh, places that, you know, there are people walking around here with Christ's very blood in them. Yes, I think
1: your last statement, you know, that this about abstinence did not apply and so forth. Isn't that the message of all the scriptures, in interpreting the scriptures? I know Dr. Maxwell used to always say, read on. You come to a passage you can't understand, it doesn't seem to fit, or so forth, keep reading on. He said, now you may run into some more that are more puzzling, but eventually, if you read from cover to cover, prayerfully, uh, the scriptures will help you to understand. And, and I think that that's the point. Uh, you can pick up the scriptures we said all along uh, 300 different denominations pull out one or two or three verses and uh, form a denomination over that
0: right we should not form a, a religion based on one scripture you have to
1: take the whole balanced gospel and with the idea that God is out <laughs> trying to save us
0: trying to heal us correct well said
2: and he said what I was thinking really that Paradigm in which we view everything is going to make a difference? Are we picking out certain scriptures to say a certain thing that we want to espouse and, uh, like, say, grow a religion out of? Or are we looking from the mind of God who is love and trying to say, why did he say this to us if he is love and if his desire for us is to prosper and be in good health and to? to enjoy and to ultimately be healed enough to live in him for eternity, What was his purpose in doing that? And was it for everyone, or was it for a certain situation? And how can I best use it in my life?
0: Uh, well said. Thank you. Well, yes?
8: One comment just kind of I've kind of been thinking about is one of the passages we just read, I think it was at the tail end of, you know, the... Uh, well, the bottom line is, followed. the next part was about if you sin, cut a hand off, it's better to lose a hand than to, you know, it's like, we all say, well, he doesn't really mean that. You know, that's, that's, that's just figurative. But yet we grasp on to another text, like choosing to say that, adult, you know, adultery is the only thing that permits divorce. You know, we choose to take that literally in black and white, but we don't drop hands for... You know, so we are being very hypocritical and inconsistent with what we choose to take literally and, and what they That's crazy, and I think it does. And trust me, I mean the reason I am still single is because I fear divorce. I'm definitely not looking for permission. You know, an easy way out. If that work, well, we'll just you know call it quits. But at the same time, um, clearly, I think it has been inappropriately used to bang people over the head, and it really is about. What has gone on in the relationship, and if if some if one of the people in the relationship decides I just don't love that person I don't you know I don't respect them I don't cherish them I think we should be saying that's cause for the divorce as much as well it says only adultery so you know you're going to burn in hell if you get divorced for any other reason
0: yeah so God God obviously doesn't suspend the free will of the two people involved in a relationship where one one could <clears throat> embrace the relationship and be sacrificing of him or herself for the for the betterment of the relationship and the betterment of the other one and the other person can choose to say i'm out of here
8: and i think that's one of the you know the divorce rate unfortunately as i have heard is higher in the adventist church than in the general population so you know
0: it's my understanding as well
8: just uh, excommunicating those who have suffered that pain and and, you know if we're going to endorse that adultery is the only reason to justify divorce well then let's start cutting people's hands off if they steal something from a convenience store Mm -hmm. and if we're not going to do that then give people a break
0: I couldn't agree more Uh, two hands over here uh, and one we'll get to them
8: Jesus did speak um, he didn't speak in just figures he spoke directly to people as well I mean, if we take the Ten Commandments, to being figurative. I mean, how, how far are you going to go with that? If we say, do not kill, well, it's okay to kill sometimes. We can kill someone if they're, you know, you can't just say everything the Bible is. We can't take it literally, But there are some things you can take literally. I and mean, You need to take the Ten Commandments and other things as, as they are. And you can't just say, well, okay, they're figurative. We don't have to go to church on Saturday. That's just the Lord's Day, whatever we want to make. It. I mean, you can take it pretty far. So, I mean, you don't want to just say... You know, everything God said for everything just said was figurative. I
0: don't think so. Oh, I, I, I hope that's not the point you guys are taking from this. Uh, that's not what I'm saying at all.
8: I'm just saying... Response that's not here. what I'm saying either. But I'm just saying we choose sometimes to take the, the figurative interpretation because it's easy. Because
0: it's easier. Because it, it,
8: we reject the literal one because it seems too extreme. You know, we're losing the guiding principle to determine what's being said there. We just put it in our own paradigm and interpret
2: what we want to interpret it's inconsistent. I wanted to tag on to what you were saying about one person can have one set of uh, feelings in the relationship, the other person makes another decision which affects then the, uh, the other side. But I think what I'm hearing from everybody all the way around, um, and I have to place myself in the same situation, prior uh, to walking in the steps, I was in a position of judging what other people's relationships were, too. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I'm hearing from everything that's being said. We need to leave the judgment part of the hearts involved to the good Lord. Amen. Somehow, we'll stay connected to the Lord as we're enduring the choices and decisions that people make within relationships. And so I agree, we need the balance but Satan is going to make real sure that we stay confused about all of it. And we'll spend eternity trying to sort out, well, yeah, I think this and I think the other thing, when we really need to be focusing on, on what God wants out of our own life.
0: Thank you. Uh, well said, Sharon. I, I that...
7: agree with my son, but I can also see his point. Of course. Because they asked Billy Graham one time, "Have you ever, his wife, have you ever thought of divorce? She said, never, but I thought of murder. <laughs>
0: at the bottom of sunday's lesson there's a little uh orange box that says that sometimes as is the case there are things in the bible that are hard to understand uh in the teacher's quarterly it <clears throat> references a mark twain quote says mark twain once said that what bothered him most about the bible were not the things that he could not understand but the things that he could understand what does that have? To, what does that have to say about human nature? All right, um, let's go to Wednesday's lesson because we talk about perfection, and if we have time, we'll come back to Mondays regarding forgiveness. We have two different versions of of this saying quote saying that uh, Christ is given. The one in Matthew says Matthew five forty eight Be ye therefore perfect even as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And the one in Luke says, in 636, says, Be ye therefore merciful, as your Heavenly Father is merciful. How is being merciful equated with perfection? Or is it? Absolutely, yes. Perfection
6: would
2: be total unselfish.
0: Right. Okay. Exactly. Uh when, when Christ says, "Be ye therefore perfect," even as your heavenly Father is perfect, what is He referring to? Is He referring to perfect behavior or perfect behaviors, or is He referring to some other definition of perfection? Perfect it's a
6: perfect character, like the
2: character of God, which is love. Which is love. My understanding is that you have two choices. Either you love the truth and you believe the truth and you want to live the truth and you ask God to help you live that truth, or you don't love the truth and you live the other, the other kind of life. When you decide to love the truth, then you grow towards perfection. And God decides when you're going to reach that perfection. You don't have to worry
0: about it. Okay. Imagine for a minute that you are infected with the HIV virus. This is the virus that causes AIDS a human immunodeficiency virus, and you go to your physician and you ask them to minimally heal you. Do you want to be minimally healed? Do you want to be moderately healed?
1: 100%.
0: Do you want to be 98% healed?
4: percent.
0: you want to be perfectly healed? Is that perhaps the perfection that Christ is referring to perfect healing,
2: but he's responsible for the healing as long as we follow him.
0: Yes, sir.
5: This, uh, this verse is the last one in this first of all, all that, where he's already discussed your salt, of the earth, murder uh, against the heart, adultery, marriage, uh, go to the second mile, love your enemies. Then he finally comes down after he covers all this character that we live in, uh-huh. it says, therefore, if you've got all these other things clear, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father. Everybody.
0: Which comes first, the healing, the perfect healing of the heart, or the perfect behaviors?
6: <laughs>
0: the healing has to come first. The Imagine that you're not infected with the HIV virus now. You're infected with pneumonia. And you have symptoms. Your symptoms are fever. You're coughing up ugly stuff. You feel a general sense of malaise. You don't feel well at all. Joint aches. Are these symptoms, are they the problem? Are they results of the problem? Results. Results. The results of the problem. The problem is you're infected with pneumonia. And if you heal the pneumonia with antibiotics, it's a bacterial pneumonia, you heal it with antibiotics. Do sometimes the symptoms get worse? Do the symptoms disappear overnight? No, no they don't. They, ha- they still reappear, and sometimes they worsen. Sometimes you cough off stuff that's even uglier than when you were infected with pneumonia, when you're taking the healing remedy. As your body continues to fight the infection, sometimes fever increases. This this idea about having perfect behavior uh, I think comes from a legal approach to the plan of salvation. And one of the things that I really respect and admire about Tim's model is he uses a healthcare model which I just resonated to more, maybe because I'm in healthcare. It just it just makes better sense to me that we that God is trying to heal us and the behaviors that you and I the behaviors of omission and commission that you and I see in ourselves and in others, and we're much better seeing them at others than we are in ourselves, these are symptoms of the same disease. Judgment, dishonesty, infidelity pride, Um, all of these things are all symptoms of the same disease. And God is trying to heal every one of us. Perfectly heal us, so that the symptoms disappear. You first, and then Tina, we'll get to you.
3: I think, not to go against with what your your model there, uh, I think the Greek does kind of help to bring out um, something, though. um, It uses a a future tense when it talks about be ye or you will be it doesn't use the imperative form and So really kind of the idea seems to be Then you will be mature Just as your father in heaven is mature and the perfect word. I think we've kind of uh, Misused that because of our modern connotation of flawlessness, which is not what it used to mean. The word perfect used to mean something else, uh, more like mature. So when you come to the end of that passage, then using the perfect, I mean the future form of the verb to be, you will be mature like your father and have
0: this mature. Well said. And, and I think that actually dovetails perfectly with the, with the healthcare model. Taking the patient with pneumonia. There are different stages on that process, and we are all at different stages of healing right now. Uh, there's the person that has just been diagnosed with pneumonia by the great physician and has just started to understand the, the scope of the problem and is just beginning to cooperate with the physician for the healing to take place. There's the other person who's much further along in this process who's about to finish their course of antibiotics. So, yeah, absolutely. We're all, on a, we're all on a continuum. You know, not one of us has reached perfection yet. And not one of us has been completely healed. One second. Tina?
2: When I looked this up in the Bible commentary, it said that when Christ was speaking to the Jews, he knew that the attitude of their hearts <coughs> was more on their, uh, what they did, their acts.
0: Their appearances, yes. It was
2: more important to them to have good deeds reported to heaven. How many more good deeds they had than bad deeds? But God looked at the attitude of the heart, which is perfect love for the fellow man. And when he was speaking of perfection, he was speaking that
7: perfect love that we should have for everybody
0: that God has for us. Well said. Yes, ma'am.
7: God never asks us something that we cannot do. Never. He asks us. He never puts a standard that we cannot reach. And he considers Abraham being a righteous man. Righteous means perfect. Did Abraham sin? Of course. But... I think perfection is that when we make mistakes, when we sin, we are willing to repent. And God said, when when we repent, he throws it on the bottom of the sea, Never remember it again, as if never sinned. That's perfection. That will be willing. And there's a big difference between sinning and living in sin, between sin and effort. Some people living in sin and have no intentions of making things right with God. And they keep doing it over and over and over. But there are some people, they sin, but as soon as they sin, they cannot live with themselves. They cannot go to sleep. Their conscience you? bothers them so much till they make things right. Mm-hmm. That's not anyway. So that's, that's perfection, that your conscience will bother you so much that you cannot go to sleep before you make things right. But living, like I was talking to somebody who is uh, uh, no Baptist. He said, I told him, there's nothing such a thing that you say uh, once you're saved, you're always saved. He told me, do you mean you're trying to tell me that my brother that lives with his girlfriend is not going to be saved? I told him that's right. You cannot live in sin and be saved, but you can sin and be saved if you are willing to repent. Because God promised, I will throw your sin in the bottom of the sea, never remember it again. You'll consider this perfect. Because you cannot say you reach a point to be perfect. That's impossible. Because Mrs. White considered losing patience on your child is sin. How many mothers sometimes not yell or, you know? or without even being aware of it. So uh, if we're willing to make things right with God and repent and ask God to forgive us, help us to be better Christian, help us to overcome, God consider us with never sin, we consider God's eyes and person at that moment. If we're willing to do it again, if we make mistakes, then we'll perfect again.
4: Thank you. The way I see it is, picture there's like a, you know, 12-foot tall wall, and God is right there, and he's telling you to get over the wall. He says, jump over the wall. And he's standing there with his hands, ready for you to put your foot in them and get over the wall with his help. But you're too busy focusing on trying to get over the wall. You don't even see him there trying to help you. And so many of us are focused on getting over the wall that we're not even looking at God trying to help us get over the wall. And we can't do it unless he's helping us. It's not something we do by ourselves. He's not saying, I'm perfect come and be perfect like me, good luck on getting there. He's, you know, look at me, focus on me, and eventually you will get there. Okay. Yes? Um, Matthew 19, 26 says, With
2: men, this is
0: impossible, but with
2: God, all things are possible."
6: Thank you. Interesting evidence in the Bible. One of the few people that I know about that's actually been called perfect, is Job all right? you look at the story of Job and I found it interesting when he said God said he was perfect right after that he gives behavior to me that says why he's perfect he went about every morning praying for his loved ones his family because they were out partying having a good time he was afraid that they would be lost and his overwhelming consumption was for his loved ones and family
0: Focus on others Focus instead of himself. On
6: others, and he's actually called. Perfect. Is this the cause I knew not. I searched out. Yeah, I think that's. I think that hand in hand, and that's why he was called perfect.
0: Okay, let's talk a little bit in uh, the time remaining about Monday's lesson and, and forgiveness. How many in here have read Tim's book? Half the class, more than half the class. This book is worth buying simply for the chapter on forgiveness he outlines that there are seven myths regarding forgiveness, and I just want to ponder some of those now. Um, but before we do that, what does God expect of us in forgiveness? The, the, the um, lesson gives two examples of some fairly heinous crimes that uh, were committed. Uh, and are those the type of things that God expects us to forgive? Uh, or does he just expects us to forgive the, you know, the minor offenses of having our feelings hurt and things like that? And he really doesn't expect us to forgive someone who murders our child or someone who rapes us or someone who...
1: Well, the, the perfect example, again, I would think is Jesus who, uh, on the cross looked around and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I think the ideal is that failing to forgive hurts the person as much as the the person who harmed you in many sense.
0: As much or or more.
1: And so that he was saying again, if you can, by God's grace, come to the point to where you're like Jesus, you forgive them, even if they murder you, why, you know... Of such is the kingdom of heaven, you're, you're
0: fed in. Okay, that brings us to myth number two about forgiveness equals salvation. This is a myth. The people that crucified Christ on the cross were doing so in a hurry so they could have his body down to keep the Sabbath. When Christ looked down on them with pity and forgiveness in his heart, and his mind, and his very being, were they saved? When they were, they were forgiven, were they saved? It
2: didn't, make them, it didn't make them any better. Right. Well, God forgives everything. And we just don't accept His forgiveness. If we don't accept His forgiveness, He can keep forgiving us for everything. But we have to be willing to change and to come to Him and accept that forgiveness.
0: What happens when we accept our forgiveness? And when that when that transformation occurs,
2: There's heart change. Mm-hmm. and um, well, the consequences of sin are still there even when you forgive somebody. Um, but hopefully, you, in your forgiving of other people, that you can still love. Them.
0: Oh, so if we if we accept and intellectualize and are. Our, our, capable of receiving the forgiveness that god has promised us then in that again that circle metaphor that forgiveness that we've experienced in our own lives extends towards others and keeps flowing in a circle what about the roman centurion when christ gave up the ghost said it is finished and died what do the roman centurion say Truly, this is the Son of God, or some references a Son of God. Might he be saved? We don't know. We, we don't know. We don't know about all the individuals that were standing there watching this process. Even those that were that were tormenting Christ, we don't know how they were touched by. We don't know. We may never know until we get to heaven how the individuals were touched. We can, we can fairly safely conclude that the, the groups of Pharisees and Sadducees and Sanhedrin didn't change because they continued persecuting uh, the Christians you know, long after Christ was uh, taken back to heaven. But the Roman centurion, the thief on the cross, we don't know how individuals were touched by, by that act of forgiveness. Uh, Real quickly, I want to just go through the other myths, and then we're going to have to close. Uh, Myth number one, forgiveness, you can only forgive only only after you've gotten an apology from the offending party. Okay, this is a myth. Some people that offend us have no idea that they've offended us, and even if they do have an idea, they're not the least bit repentant. Okay, we can still, and we must still, forgive them. We already talked about forgiveness equaling salvation is a myth. Uh, numbers three and seven kind of dovetail together. Forgiveness means that whatever was done was okay, or that a person got away with it. This is a the problem with this; these myths is they they are part of the legal approach to sin and and salvation. Okay, those who. Those who need forgiving, those who have offended us, uh, are damaging their own character and their own soul far more than they've hurt us. Uh, number four, forgiveness leads to increased vulnerability. And four and five, or four and six, kind of go together. The forgiveness means forgetting. These are also myths. Uh, if your spouse cheats on you, and you are able to reconcile that and forgive them, that doesn't mean you still trust them. Trust has to be regained. And again, that, that is the number five, forgiveness equals restored trust. That's not correct either. Trust must be rewon, And that's what God has been doing since man, since Adam and Eve fell into sin. He's been trying to restore our trust. Amen. And we are led to repentance through God's... Yeah. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Gracious Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for going to such great lengths to win humanity back to acceptance and trust. And we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your forgiveness. And we ask that you continue to send us, send your Holy Spirit and to guide our lives, that we extend this love and forgiveness to others. And we may hasten your coming. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you all for participating. Have a great Sabbath and rest of the weekend. We'll see you next week
6: you say cheddar, uh...